Episode 15, The White Album, the second record. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Galker, along with that Beatle guru, Rick Halpin, and it is the White Album Part 2, the second album. This episode will give us a chance to spin the second disc on the epic recording, and we want to get to it, but you know we have those housekeeping notes, so let's get into that. I have a podcast, and it's called Something Came From Baltimore, which is a music interview podcast. It's more jazz, R&B, and blues, and it's not really about Baltimore, but we want you to subscribe, and the link is in the show notes. We want you to be a part of that Be More music scene. The Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, is all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles, and he sweats the Beatle DNA. Follow him on his Facebook page. It's called Come Together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin. The link is in the show notes. Uh, we also have a Facebook page for this show. It's called The Beatles Come to America. And we're asking you to hop on and rank the best Beatle U.S. albums from best to worst. And um, it is a lot harder than you think. And as a bonus, at the end of every episode of The Beatles Come to America, we have the Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, original recording. And, and you just want to stay for that. And we hope you subscribe, participate, enjoy, and just remember, we love the Beatles, so you love us in our comments. Please, please, please. And also enjoy our other creative projects. So here we go. It's The Beatles Come to America, episode 15, The White Album, the second record. This two side one, which we're at birthday, which in my opinion is, again, a, a top 40 hit. Well, it's interesting that you say that, Tom, because John Lennon said it was a piece of garbage. You gotta love that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did. That's what he said about this. His his bluntness cracks you up, but to a uh, consumer out there, I think they think of otherwise. Yeah, no, it's it's a very explosive, positive. Very, I mean, the track is so positive. It's got so much great energy in the track. You could hear it, you know, and I know myself being a recording artist and being in recording studios since I was 15, is that whatever you're feeling and when you're recording something, believe it or not, somehow it picks up the energy, you know, and these guys, they were having a ball. I mean, that's the feeling I get just from listening to this song, Birthday, and as we know, this album was very problematic for the Beatles, and they were fighting with each other and arguing and screaming and Ringo quit, et cetera, et cetera. And Jeff Emmerich quit. So it's great to know that they were at least being able to, at different times with different songs, to still be able to pull it together, you know, and be the band that we uh, that we love so much. They're still on the top of their craft, and uh, even if this was a throwaway like any other artist in 1968 would love to have this song in their catalog. It's just the who would kill, oh. kill for this song. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're superb, as you say, in terms of their crafting and musicianship. I mean, you got Paul and John both playing the, the lead guitar riff on this song. <laughs> You know, usually it's George and John, or it's George and Paul, but now it's John and Paul. And it was pretty much Paul came up with the idea. You know, he wanted to come up with, a, um, uh, instead of the traditional happy birthday song, that everyone would be playing this. And you know what? He's, <laughs> I think his wish has come true, certainly with Beatle fans, that's for sure. Uh, George playing bass on this, and the background vocals, uh, which you may or may not know, is... And we got Patty Harrison and Yoko Ono together on the birthday. And it's a great, also, not, a, not only an exciting piece of music, but it's a great song to dance to. It's a dance track. It really is. I love it. If they were going to release singles, this had to be a single. I know we're talking about 50-some years now. It was a regular staple on FM, you know, pop radio and, and through the years. It's just not. It, it may be on the oldie stations, but... You don't hear it as much as you used to. It's not. It didn't last in in the lexicon of what they play on Beatles stuff, you know. But mm -hmm. it's a great song. And uh, the next song is 
very intense. Uh, your blues. I uh, just knew that that whole English group, all the groups were really focused on blues music. And while yes. and they were bringing back like uh, Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf, and and they were acknowledging Robert the, Johnson, yeah, yeah. The, the greatness of all those artists. Yeah. And this comes out, which is really heavy. It's almost like a heavy metal song. But go ahead, give me your thoughts on on your blues. So we go from the very bright, happy. Paul birthday to this really, in, as you said, intense, extremely dark song. I mean, for God's sakes, he's so lonely he wants to die. I mean, those are pretty scary lyrics. Uh, you know, I feel so suicidal, you know, just like Dylan's Mr. Jones, which is a reference to Dylan's song on Highway 61 album, Ballad of the Thin Man, I believe is the name of the song. Into the room. This is a scary track, lyrically. Uh, musically, it's, it is bluesy. You know, it is bluesy. And, and they claimed that they were kind of doing it tongue-in-cheek, almost like a parody. And, you know, they were good doing parody, that's for sure. But I think this is more than a parody. I mean, I think they were really sort of down and dirty on this one. And you can even hear the, you know, John takes the first guitar solo. It's so obvious to hear who's playing when John plays a lead guitar solo at this point. And then George plays that really second guitar lead solo, which is a more higher note, higher range piercing guitar. I mean, it's really intense. And again, you know, John loves to mix, as we've talked about before, and especially on this album as well, Mixing time signatures is in six, eight time the verses. Yes, I'm long to three, four, five, six. Don't you tell. Born a daughter. Yes, I'm And then we go to the bridge. My mother was of the sky. Two, one, two, three. It's some lonely. You know, he does that. He just loves to go back and forth. My mother was of the sky. My father was of the earth. And I am of the universe. So anyhow, it's it's a great song. I... I I didn't like it at first, to be honest with you. When I first heard it in 68, I thought, oh, this is really a... It didn't sound good to me, you know. But over the years, it has uh, it has grown on me, I must say. Yeah, yeah. But at first, it was, especially coming after birthday, it was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it almost didn't sound like the same band. And it's it really is. It's the Plastic Ono band. That's John doing what he did two years later, you know, with his Plastic Bands uh, album. So that's what was going on, and that's how I, I feel about your blues. That's funny. I felt the same way. I mean, when I started listening to this album, I was, I don't know, maybe about eight, and uh, there's some tracks that I wasn't mature enough to handle. Not to say that you weren't mature enough. It was creepy. It was something I wasn't prepared to hear from any Beatle, and I'm like, you've come a long way just in a short period of time from you're going to lose that girl to I, you know, oh I'm lonely. I want to die. <laughs> it's like the ending is bizarre. You know, it's got that strange ending where the vocal is—they call it a bleed through. It's bleeding through on the track. You could hear it way, way, way in the background because it was bleeding through on the mics, bleeding through on the guitar mics. You know what I'm talking about at the end.
Yeah. And there's this really strange drum bit that Ringo does uh, before it goes into that ending part. So it's, it's, it is a little bit, the ending is a little bit avant-garde, you know, a little bit, a little bit. It's, it's John, you know, what do you, what do you want? It's John Lennon in 1968. So there you have it. The next song, in my opinion, could be a single also. It's a, it's a pretty song, and it's a pure Paul McCartney song. It's, it's actually would be something awesome that you would hear off of his first album. I'm sure you have thoughts on this song. I, I give this a high, high thumbs up for me. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful Paul McCartney song. It's solo Paul. There's no other Beatle on the track. You know, and again, when you look at the one album, you know, Paul does, let's see, he does, he does Wild Honey Pie alone. He does Dude in the Road pretty much alone, except for Ringo. He does Mother Nature's Son solo. He does Martha My Dear without the other Beatles solo. And he does Blackbird solo. I mean, there's five songs. There's Sola McCartney on the Wine album. That's incredible. Okay, Ringo plays drums on Dude in the Road, but, you know, aside from that. But this is a, a beautiful, I mean, his vocal is so sweet. I mean, his guitar playing is, is outstanding. It is almost like a classical guitar playing that he's, that he's playing. And the song, to me, is not, a, you know, they say it's a folk song, but you could say it's a folk song because he's playing an acoustic guitar and there's not a lot of electric stuff going on. But it's almost classical sounding to me. It's absolutely gorgeous. And then you got him, you know, Paul also plays the timpani, which is kind of nice, here and there with accents and some drums. But George Martin's contribution is perfect. The way he did the trumpets and the trombones, they were way in the background, you know, as if they're off in the distance, like the trumpets and the trombones. And, of course, this is the mixing element I'm talking about. You put them in the background. It's as if the brass are back there, you know, where the sun is maybe hiding behind the hills or something. It's just perfect. Yeah, you're right. I love the horns at the tail and just the just the end of the song. The other thing that I find quite interesting is that he's doing a double entendre because the name of the song, of course, is Mother Nature's Son, S-O-N, Son of the Mother of Nature. But then the son is sitting, singing songs for everyone beneath the sun. So that's, that's a clever lyrical trick that works perfectly for this song. I mean, at one point, I didn't even know it. Why years ago, I thought, well, is this Mother Nature's S-U-N? You know, I wasn't quite sure, because if it was S-U-N, it would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Mother Nature's son, you know, the sun from above. So that's an interesting thing lyrically on this song. Well, it's like perfect touch. I love the intro to this song. Like the, the first, you know, couple bars, I think, are fantastic. I think that it's very rock and roll. It, it veers off a little after that. But it sounds like you're really in for like a power pop rock song. Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Almost needs a whole podcast to explain what the song's about. What is this song about? What's your opinion? This is a screaming rocker, as you say. Absolutely love this song. The sound of the song is phenomenal. The way they were playing their instruments and the way it was produced, oh my God. But what is this song all about? Okay, well, and this is according to John Lennon, and I quote, that this song, everybody that has something in the hot except for me and my monkey, is about me and Yoko. So John is telling us that he's referring to Yoko as his monkey. I <laughs> that, wow. I mean, that's pretty heavy stuff. I'm surprised that he, number one, that he said that. And number two, that maybe that's what she was screaming about all that time, you know, when she was on stage. <laughs> and, of course, the reference, references to heroin are blatant. The deeper you go, the higher you fly, the higher you fly, the deeper you go. So come on, come on, it's such a joy. I mean, that's definitely a reference to heroin. You know, Paul even said that he thought the song was about heroin as well, and, and Yoko and John were doing heroin at the time. And John denies it, of course. And again, 
We've got the changing time signatures, but at the end, it's it's arbitrary. It's it's off the beat. It's just like anywhere. It's free form. It's experimental. And then you know you've got this out of rhythm at the very end. And before that, even that, you've got this. The bass and the guitars come in ripping, repeating this. You never heard it before in the song, and all of a sudden something new comes in, but it comes in only once, and it comes in toward the end of the song. And that's, like, I really still, again, I know we've said, I've said this many times as we talk about the wine album. This is another experimental ending, sort of avant-garde-ish ending that John put on the end of this song. I love this song. Absolutely love it. This is a deep catalog song. Anyone else would love to have this on their album. And it's clean. It always sounded clean to me, where the production value is really, mm. really bright. The next song, Sexy Sadie, has a really cool piano intro where it kind of it like drones in and out. Like it's fuzzy, if you know what I mean. Like it's like in a... It's sleepy. I love the harmonies of the, the chorus. Se sexy Sadie. Beautiful. This is a thumbs up again for me. A lot of the songs on this album were written when they were in India. And as we talked, we talked about this before, but it's, it's nice to talk about it again. They all went there because they thought Marish, Maharishi, you know, was the greatest thing, you know, since since Jesus Christ or what have you. And But then John realized that he, or at least John's opinion was, that he was actually a capitalist and that he was really building his wealth. You know, he had a, a fleet of, I don't know, he had helicopters, I guess he had his own airplane and whatever, you know. And, and supposedly he made sexual advances toward Mia Farrow's, uh, actually toward Mia Farrow, yeah. I think it was Mia Farrow or her sister, one of the Pharaohs, I mean, the Prudence and Mia. Uh, poor so, Prudence had a tough time. She had a song. She wouldn't come out to play, and then she got harassed. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't a fun Boy, time for her. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it was actually towards uh, Mia Farrow on this one. But but as it turned out, some people said that it wasn't true. There was just a rumor created by Magic Alex, who was this wacko guy, who supposedly was this electronic genius who went with them, who was hanging out and clinging to the Beatles, especially John, uh, because Alex put some sort of colored lights in a box. This is before. This is back in 67. And then John opened up the box, and then Alex turned on the lights. John was tripping on LSD at the time. <laughs> so John's going, oh, you're, you're, you're a genius, man, you know. You got to come into Apple. <laughs> because he had, he had these colored light box. But anyhow... So who knows if it's true or not? I mean, let's let's face it. The Maharishi is a human being. You know, he's 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 got a body. So it's not that unrealistic or unbelievable that he would have the urge to exercise different parts of his body. You know. Now that piano part you talked about, it's played by Paul. It's an as you said, it's a boy. He just nailed it. You know, it's such a perfect piano for for this song, John's song. It's also interesting that uh, John, of course, wanted to name it. He wanted to name the song Maharishi, but George talked him out of it because George still felt her closeness, I should say, with the Maharishi. And John listened to George and he changed it to Sexy Sadie. Not only is the piano wonderful, but John's vocals are just outstanding. I love the sound of his voice. It is, again, it's dreamy like the dreamy sound of the piano. And this song, in terms of the chord progression, is quite unusual. It's quite advanced. It's not your usual three or four chords. It's just brilliant the way that John came up with this and the Beatles' their contribution. Paul's bass line is a mind-blower. 
George's lead guitar is out of this world. It's an unbelievable song. And what's interesting, too, is we're going from the down and dirty, uh, rough, your blues to the screaming rock and roll monkey. And now we go into this dreamy state of sexy Sadie, you know, all, all within a span of, you know, they're just with the exception of Paul's Mother Nature's Son and Between These Songs. It's quite remarkable. I mean, Lennon was just exploding with material, obviously. You know, you can understand how the Maharishi may be considered taking advantage of it because the world really didn't know who the Maharishi was. The Beatles are going to hang out with them. And all of a sudden, you know, it's front page news and uh, whatever paparazzi they had at that time flocking, you know, over to India, along with the fact that, you know, now 50 some years later, we're seeing a lot of video of that. Like they're supposed to be quiet and, you know, uh, yeah. they're all, you know, in the grass. They're, um, yeah. you know, holding hands, running around. Um, right. there, there seems to be a lot of footage. So is it a, a place of solace and solitude or is it just another like a getaway you know, like, like to the Bahamas or something. I don't know. Boy, did it help them out with their writing. They really got some good material out of it. Oh, my God, yeah. They were, the most, as they say, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about was written in India. The next song is obviously, like Charles Manson uh, took this song, and, and uh, or the term, the title, Helter Skelter, and just turned it into something completely different. This song, Charles Manson stole from the Beatles for stealing a fire. This is a wild song, and the guitar... Paul's voice, uh, the drums. Like, I'm thinking about, like, I think Black Sabbath just maybe have started out, or Led Zeppelin hasn't started out yet. But this kind of sound really wasn't that familiar. And for, a, like, a, you know, the Beatles, this is just like kind of a one-of-a-kind. But uh, what's your thought about this song? For, for this song to happen in 1968 is like, w w wait a minute, whoa, what's going on here? What What is this? It starts off with a blistering, screaming electric guitar, and it's dissonant, when that means that it's not harmonious. So straight away, there's two notes that are close to each other, which creates tension. It creates, it just when you listen to it, whether you know it or not, you're listening to tense music because of the two notes that are close together. <laughs> very dissonant beginning. That's how you're starting this thing. So it, right from the very few seconds, it's like, what the hell are they doing with this song? And then McCartney's vocals, where the hell did he get these vocals from? I mean, he's an incredible vocalist. Yes, the way he sings, I'm down, is great, of course. But I mean, this blows I'm down away. I mean, this, I don't know how the hell he did it. And even though Darlin is great on the bridge, but this... He's doing stuff that I don't think he'll, you know, he did it once. I don't know if he necessarily can't do it now. Talk about rocky and dirty and, oh, my God, it is it is filthy. I mean, it's, it's cacophony. And, again, cacophony is a musical term, which means it's musical chaos going on. It's organized chaos during the verses and during the chorus. But in between, with all the riffs, and the slide guitar work that George is doing, and the the ending fades out, then it fades back in, which they did a chorus with Strawberry Fields Forever, nothing new.
but they did it again. John is playing the six-string bass on this, by the way. And the sound of the bass is, doesn't sound like any other bass sound on the entire record. It's extremely bright. You know, it almost sounds like, um, well, because it's a six-string bass, you know, so you get those higher notes on the top strings of the six-string bass. And Lennon plays an amazing bass line on this song. You think McCartney would want to, want to overdub the bass, but he didn't. Mal Evans is blowing the trumpet toward the end. You know, again, dissonant. You know, it's not like... George Martin, oh, let me write a trumpet part out. I'll get someone from the from the London Symphony to play the trumpet. No, no, no. Mal's just, you know, screwing around. Uh, but it worked. That worked. And it's avant-garde. This is avant-garde. It's experimental. It's almost like a music collage. The ending, the ending is a music collage with all the dissonance and, and the cacophony going on. And it also happens to be something called heavy metal, you know, years before the term even existed. And then it ends with Ringo and it fades out again and then fade back in real quick just for Ringo, you know, to do his crashing cymbals and yelling, I've got ballistics on my fingers. I mean, good Lord, this is just a, a monster. It's a monster. I can't compare it to any other Beatles song in their catalog. It's a, it's a standalone. And if it belongs anywhere, it belongs on, on the White Album because the White Album has everything on it. <laughs> so that's why, this, that's why this song fits on the White Album. It's, it's an incredible track. Extremely innovative extremely original just a monster song when they fade back in the first time is there like like birds like in the background or is that a squeaking guitar i think it's i think it's uh, george with the slide guitar pretty sure it's pretty Sounds wild like it. yeah it's oh wild. yeah oh oh absolutely you know all this guitar work that george is doing it doesn't really parlay into his solo work he seems to be really focused on like a, a more of a country rock slash slide guitar when he you know the 70s kick in but his guitar work here is fantastic sometimes you almost think it's it's eric clapton or something okay so what's next it's been a long 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 time since i've spoken with you tom that's, that's right i guess the the 2018 version of this album they cleaned it up a little maybe it was muddier production i always love this song i always think this is something that is very pink floydish it just needed a little more work to be even more weirder it's just on the fence it's a creepy song of george and uh it's beautiful at the same time when he goes so many years i've been searching that i've part. been searching so Song? It's definitely not a love song. I find it it has a creep vibe to it, especially the end with the the noise oh, at well, the, the bottom, the, 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 the weird yeah. moan unnecessary. Like it's definitely not a love song. It's lo long, 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 long time. And the yeah. uh, doo -doo 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 guitar line with the bass yeah, on it. It's it, a beautiful, beautiful guitar riff. Yeah, yeah. It's real. It's a it's a great song. It's a good way to end out it album also um i don't know i know when i pick your brain i know that you don't like this song or you don't love it as much as i do so go ahead give me your thoughts george's vocal is fantastic it's very soft smooth and quiet you know he's not he doesn't because the song requires a soft vocal and we're coming off this screeching McCartney singing his brains out and his heart out and everything else out. And then we go to this quiet, soothing, quiet George. It's as if this is very well placed. And I want to talk about the sequencing. We're going to get into the sequencing of this album when we get down to the last track. This is perfect sequencing. This, we need long, long, long after hearing Healthy Skelter. It was kind of like long, long, oh, oh, okay, it's all right now. <laughs> okay, we're off to Healthy Skelter. Yes, thank you, George. In that beautiful, almost like a sitar 
guitar riff. Beautiful. It's beautiful. The drum fills are perfect. They're just placed perfectly. There's not many of them. But boy, when they come in, Ringo, it's almost like some of the fills that he did in A Day in the Life. By the way, there's no John in this. John is not on the track. He's not doing anything. Uh, Paul's playing bass, he sings the harmony with George, and then he plays the organ. Chris Thomas plays the piano, not Paul on this one. It's such a beautiful song. And then the ending happens. And it's like, what the hell does the ending have to do with the song? And the answer to the question, it has absolutely nothing to do with it. So this is George's avant-garde bit. We know that John did all these strange endings on a number of the songs that we've already talked about in the one album. And now it's George's turn. Oh, well, you know, John did that. So, you know, I'm going to go and do something strange at the end of my long, long song or something. I don't know why he did it. Yeah, there was a wine bottle on the Leslie's speech cabinet. And then when Paul hit a certain note, it started singing and it made this noise. All right, well, that's great. Why don't you put that on... Revolution 9, you know, it would fit on Revolution 9 in terms of the sound a lot, but it doesn't, it kind of pisses me off that they did that. Because I think it destroys and it really, really ruins an absolutely beautiful song. I would have loved to have heard George do a completely different ending in keeping with the character of the song instead of doing this damn ending that I don't like. This avant-garde ending, strange, dissonant. And then, furthermore, he's howling like a cat in heat. You know, come on, really. What a shame. <laughs> what a shame. It's a fantastic song. It went from like really pretty and haunting and, and beautiful to really creepy. And then you're like, oh my God, what's it's almost like the apocalypse. You got a Helter Skelter and then you got this, uh, the Beatles with these high energy rock songs coming up with screaming horror songs. You're like, what is going on in this world? You know, we flip the album over. We go into revolution number one. I love the whole, like the two whoppy Beach Boy vibe to it. I like the intro when they 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 check in in the first couple a uh, couple bars. I take two. Okay. I really like the other version, the single version that that maybe that the lyrics were so strong. It's kind of John Lennon's like you know a protest song, which will have many more coming, and that he just wanted to slow it down so people can hear the lyrics. Yeah, we have three different revolutions. This was the first one that they did. It's a softer. Musically, I like this version, but the music doesn't match the lyrics. How can you have... harmonies. I mean, the vocals on Revolution 1 are superb. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. They're pretty. It has nothing to do with the revolution, so it doesn't, it doesn't match. The single, yes, that's a perfect match with, this, you know, with that ripping guitar, distorted guitar that John plays. 
And it's a faster rocker tempo. It rocks out. Yes, that sounds like a revolution musically. This does not. This does not sound like a revolution musically. In the beginning, yeah, there's like the false start, you know, take one, take two. But then there's a bunch of noises. I don't know what those noises are at the very beginning. It's like sounds like someone's crumbling up paper or something. Why? I have no idea. You know, again, just being creative and doing something different, I don't know what that is. So they do Revolution 1, and I think that Paul had something to do with this arrangement. That's my feeling. You know, the whole sort of bluesy, doo-woppy, uh, the bouncy, the, the saxophones, you know, the they're, they're wonderful. The way that they that they play uh, the saxes on this song are again it doesn't sound like a revolution to me at all. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you know, John he was lying down on the floor doing the vocals on the song, and that's why it's such a soft sounding vocal. When you're lying down, you know you can't sing too loud <laughs> when you're lying down. And the other thing that's uh, interesting is that he says, you know, you count me out in. Right, because he wasn't sure where he stood in terms of quote unquote all the social unrest that was going on and the social revolution that was taking place. A part of him wanted to be in the revolution. A part of him wanted to be out of the revolution. So he said both out and in. Which I'm sure was John being in being absolutely honest with us. Uh, the last chorus, there's a, a strange edit as well. Uh, it goes boom, 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 boom. They wanted to correct it, and John said, no, keep it in. You know, that's another side of John, sort of the John Cajun things just happen sort of happenstance, leave it alone, don't fix it, don't correct it. And that's also an experimental side, certainly, that John was very, very much doing at this time. This song went on for like, I think, 11 minutes or more. And that's where they, obviously, they realized that, well, they decided, listen, we can't put all that here. And I've heard the extended version, I have it somewhere. And that gave birth to Revolution 9, so they were, in other words, they, they were doing this bluesy, doo-woppy, mellow Revolution 1, and then they started to go experimental and avant-garde and get a little crazy, and that opened up the door for Revolution 9. So what you hear in Revolution 9, which we'll talk about shortly, some of the stuff that they did, that's not that they did originally on Revolution 1, the ending part, which they cut off because it was too long, some of that is on Revolution 9. So that's why we have three different versions. Right. Go right into Honey Pie. But this is like a Tin Pan Alley like song, and it's perfect to me. It's wild the way it, it fits on this album. Honey Pie. You're making me crazy, and I'm loving I'm lazy. It's a total line from that time period. Honey Pie, you are making me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. This is the same guy who wrote and sang Helter Skelter. <laughs> I mean, that, that says so much. I mean, really, think about that. This is the same guy. How can that possibly be? That's the breadth and the range that McCartney had back then as a writer and as a singer. And George Martin's arrangement is just absolutely perfect. <laughs> My God, the clarinet work and the sax work is perfect for the type of song that this is. And then he does one, he goes one step further and he actually, when he says, now she's hit the big time, it actually, you can hear this scratchy sound of like an old 78 record. Now she's hit the big time. You know, that's just really nice that's brilliant creative stuff i think and they didn't have to do that but you know they did and it works perfect for the song the interesting thing about this is that you know john hates these type of you know paulie songs you know these granny songs but john plays lead guitar on this song 
Yeah, very rarely he plays lead guitar. He's playing lead guitar on Paul Sunday. That's a real twist. That's a twister for me. You know, that, that's really very interesting. Yeah, it works. It works. It's a, it's a very catchy tune. A great arrangement, and Paul sounds brilliant. The next song, Salvo Truffle, is a it's a George song, but I love the groovy uh, keyboards, the organ attached to it. Wow, this album seems really like out of this world, maybe a different time and dimension, even though it's 1968. This is a stamp of what like hipster music was with the, the keyboard. It's very dated. It feels very. It feels like it's from 1968 or from the 60s. You know the song lyrically is just him reading off like descriptions of candy right yeah and you're gonna gonna have yeah and you're gonna have your teeth rot out if if you eat these so but but just without even doing that it just sounds really like a poppy fun song and it just has a lot to do with the, the the way the music is styled yeah it's a good song for george for sure it's got a great sound to it and it was inspired because his buddy eric clapton likes to eat you know, at least back then, a lot of chocolates. And so there was something called Macintosh's Good News Chocolates that George knew about. And he basically just, he was just rattling off the chocolates, the different types of chocolates that are in the box of the Macintosh's Good News Chocolates. We know that John had made references to other Beatles songs, like he did in, of course, Glass Onion. He really did a lot of that. But he also did it, you know, in I Am the Walrus. And so now George is doing it. You know, it's it's kind of interesting where he throws in, we all know, oh, blah, dee, blah, da, but can you tell me where you are? So another, again, that's kind of like a John Lennon lyrical technique. There's no, and by the way, there's no John on this track either. So we had long, 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 no John. Savoy Truffle, no John. Both George songs. Hmm, I wonder why. And Chris Thomas is the one who plays that great electric piano part. And it was Chris who did the excellent horn arrangement, not George Martin. And the sound of the baritone saxes, there's three baritone saxes and three tenor saxes. They are so bright that the way that they are produced and the level at which they were recorded was so hot, meaning so loud, that it's they sound like electric guitars going through fuzz boxes. They sound like fuzz electric guitars. They really do. And there was the complaint of the engineer saying, hey, George, you know, this is distorting. But that's exactly what George wanted. He wanted that really over-the-top distorted sound of the saxophones. I think this is one of the most underrated John Lennon songs. Uh, I love it. His it's, his lyrics are kind of like a nursery rhyme. He's talking about Queen and the King. The children are in the playroom and that kind of thing. It's got verses and it has chorus. That's it. There's no bridge in Cry Baby Cry, which is fine. You don't have to have a bridge in every song. The bass in the beginning, when the bass comes in, Tom, it's really incredible because cause it's just acoustic guitar, right? You know, John's playing acoustic guitar and singing, you know, and then all of a sudden, like this throbbing bass, Carney comes in. Incredible. At the end of the verses, he does that. got George Martin playing the harmonium and George plays the lead guitar. John's vocals, I love his vocals on this. He's He was exhibiting his vocal range as well. He's breathy. He's actually doing kind of like a breathy vocal. It's very appropriate, you know, because if a baby's crying, 
if you want to get, you know, it's sort of an analytical look at the title. You want to try to soothe the baby and stop the baby from crying. But then he says, you know, you're old enough to know better, which is a very uh, interesting little twist. And again, that's so John Lennon. So in other words, you know, you're old enough to know better, but you still go ahead and do something that you should do. And then you end up crying about it. That's so John. You know, I just love that about John Lennon. Can you take me back where I came from? Can you take me back? Yeah, and this is again fits right in because it's not even listed, and it's like, well, what's this all of a sudden? And where's this coming from? And why is it here? And what does it have to do with Cry Baby Cry? And what does it have to do with what's coming up next? Nothing, nothing. And it's mostly Paul. You know, this is Paul jamming, basically. But it is haunting. It is haunting. And it's like, Paul's asking the question, can you take me back? Can you take me back? Well, back to where? It's a haunting little piece. It's very short. Why is it there? I think, again, because this is the avant-garde album. Let's just throw it in because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have to make any sense on this album. We're throwing everything, you know, including the kitchen sink in this album. So let's throw this in, too, is my feeling. Can you take me back, Tom? Brother, can you take me back? Can you take me back? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're at revolution number nine. And my take was, please remove this and please add, hey, Jude. Hey, Jude. And it would have been the perfect amount of time or... Uh, there are other singles out there at the time that they could have stuck it in. But we have this. I had the vinyl to this album, so I rarely ever played this out this side because the song was on it. And it was it was scary. And then, you know, once we learned about the Paul Dead clues inside of it, then, it, you know, we played the whole thing backwards over and over and over. I am not a fan and I am not horrified by it like I was after 53 years of it being out. I've come to peace with it about 30 years in. So uh, <laughs> so I'm not angry anymore. I've come to some conclusion that it is what it is, and it's there, and it's always going to be there, and there's nothing I can do about it. I get very little joy listening to it. I think the number nine, number nine, Turn Me On Dead Man combo is amazing. I don't know how they do that. You you have a lot of information on this song and or it's not even a song, but uh, go ahead and and uh, let's let's talk about it. You're exactly right, Tom. It's not a song, and the Beatles were listening to the sound collage where you're taking a bunch of unrelated sounds and you're putting them and you're kind of throwing them together. And as a result of this, you get this music concrete style of composition. The first time I heard this, December 1st, 1968, I absolutely loved it. My girlfriend thought I was crazy. She hated it. She wanted me to take it on, take the, the arm and the needle off that track. I said, no, 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 this is incredible. Listen to what's going on. Listen to all the stuff that's going on here. This is really, you know, it's not just like lyrics and the guitar and the piano, bass and drums. I mean, come on, listen to what's going on. Have you, I said, have you ever heard anything like this before? No, and I don't want to hear anything like it. All right, okay, well, and there's no Paul on this. You know, George contributed an awful lot because George did something similar with his Wonderwall album that he was working on at the same time. The soundtrack album to the movie Wonderwall, there's a segment on the soundtrack called Dream Scene, and it's it's the same genre. It's music concrete, it's experimental, it's avant-garde. So George most certainly knew what John was up to and what John was going at. So they, you know, they were on the same page with this. And you can hear George speaking, you know, you know, George and John speak periodic. George, uh, John moaning, yelling, he's crying, he's shrieking. There's laughter, sounds of babies, sound of a baby. There's sounds of crashing glass, race car, car racing, a car crash, classical tape loops going backwards. I mean, on and on and on. I mean, this there's gunshots, right? There's sounds of warfare. There's sounds of, of a 
a crowd, crowds, laughter, there's applause, then there's the overlapping speech between John and George, and I think it, George says, better go see a surgeon, and, uh, and we went to see a dentist instead. And then Yoko comes in toward the end with, if you become naked, maybe, maybe even then, if you become naked, and then, I mean, this stuff is very, very sophisticated, you know, <laughs> you, you're either going to love it, or you're going to hate it, there's nothing in between. Some people say it's completely crackers, bonkers, and nuts, you know? I could see why people would say that. I understand why they would say it. I just don't agree with it. That's all. I think it's brilliant. I still do, you know, to this very day. It's incredible. And John, his his vision for this was to make an audio revolution. In other words, what would a revolution sound like? This is the revolution that sounded like in his head. That's why he did this. And after he made it, he said he made a mistake. He said he actually made an anti-revolution, which is very curious. And then there's the whole bit about the number nine, you know, and the number nine is actually a compositional element. It's a recurring element that comes in and out of the piece. And so is a church choir. There's a church choir in the background that comes in and out as well. Yeah, this to me is, is incredible. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I love it. I already did. Anyhow, number nine was John's favorite number. And that's why he claims, you know, he used it. Yeah, you play it backwards and it's turned me on dead man. You know, was that deliberate? Was just a coincidence? You know, that's a whole other conversation. And, you know, people have written books about that. <laughs> and the strange thing is, though, is that, again, and we're going to get into the sequencing. Here's a piece that John created with, with help, certainly, from George and also input from Yoko. And Yoko certainly had an influence on John with this because Yoko's, you know, conceptual avant-garde artist, and this is most certainly an avant-garde piece. It goes from this and to Goodnight, which John wrote. Again, this is the same guy, right, who put together and created Revolution 9, has the ability to go around on, without catching your breath, and goes into Goodnight. Did you want to respond to anything I said? Because I said quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, you know, without Yoko, there, I don't think there would be a revolution number nine. Um, I think that this, you know, created or gave him some more leverage to, to do it. I, I think without her in the picture, it was Cynthia in the background. I don't think we'd have a revolution number nine. But but John was listening to these composers. Now, whether he was with Yoko or Cynthia or, or Patty or Susie, he still would be his mind. And John was, let's face it, extremely curious and extremely original guy. So I'm not so sure if I can, if I agree with you. Now, yes, Yoko had, as I had said, had an influence on him, certainly. But he would have been listening to Varese and Schockhausen and Cage anyway. So so he may have wanted to do it anyway. It's just he wouldn't have heard Yoko saying, maybe even then, if you become naked. <laughs> By the way, and of course, there's a lot of backward uh, classical tape, you know, classical pieces of music that are going on, going backward through this as well. It's just amazing to me. Good Night to me is that something that Bing Crosby would do. I mean, the song is just really rich. Was this a, a George Martin production? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, my God. What a, what a job George Martin did with the orchestra. Oof. Yeah, John told George that he wanted something cheesy, <laughs> something like, you would hear, you know, on TV and some some you know kind of a cheesy movie or something, but uh, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think it's absolutely perfect. It's, I mean, it's exquisite arrangement. You cannot get any more extreme, as I mentioned, from Revolution Nine to Good Night. The other thing that's interesting now looking now we're going to look at the entire album. Everyone, John did a solo song, Julia. Paul did many solo songs on this album. And Ringo now, this is solo Ringo on Goodnight. There's no other, there's no one else. It's just Ringo and an orchestra. Now, isn't it strange? Why didn't George do a solo on this record? Because it seemed like that was part of the composition, if you will, of, of the music, of the tracks, that, okay, John's going to do a solo I'm going to do my, my solo bits, my four solo songs, as Paul, of course. And now Ringo does a solo song. George should have done a solo song, I think. Now, this album is about the Beatles as soloists. Because as we had mentioned, there are some songs when it's, they're not solos, then, well, then John's not on this song. 
and you know, Paul's not on that song, and George is not on that song. So you can see that it's they're operating as soloists. Yes, there are songs where they are jamming as a band. Absolutely, admittedly. Your Blues is one of them that comes to mind. Um, I'm, I think I'm so tired would fit in that category. This album is the disintegration of the band to a certain extent. And plus you add the fact that they were fighting and arguing with each other. And Ringo quit the band, for God's sake. Their lead engineer quits. This was a solo. It's not. It's not a band album overall. I mean, even the four color photographs inside the album, as I mentioned earlier, another part of the interview, is that they're not together. They're they're separate individual photos of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. You know, in the past with Pepper, they would all be on one, you know, on one poster. Why did they do that? Maybe because they didn't want their they wanted the individual photos in this album to correlate and correspond to the individuality that is very prominent on this wide album. All right, uh, the Beatle Guru, Brooke Halpin, thank you very much for talking about side two of the white album, The Beatles Come to America. My pleasure, Tom. It's always fun. Thanks so much for having me. Next episode, The Beatles, The Yellow Submarine Soundtrack. Now enjoy an original Brookhoppin composition, You Broke My Heart.
end of episode.